HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Raj Vaidya. We'll talk to Raj about champagne, burgundies, the laws, and more. We'll taste a little champagne for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Jersey boy Raj Vaidya has been grinding in the wine business for over 20 years at some of the finest restaurants in the country. His longest tenure was with legendary chef Daniel Balud in New York City, where he served as sommelier and beverage director. Like many psalms, Raj left the floor and ultimately joined Daniel Johns as director of operations of Gracie Events, the people behind La Palais, La Fête du Champagne, La Table and Pressoir Wine. Raj also does fine wine consulting. The eighth edition of La Fête du Champagne is coming to New York City November 6th through the 13th, live for the first time since the pandemic. Welcome back to the Grape Nation, Raj. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Sam. All right, so we're talking to Raj remotely. Initially, Raj was going to sit in the studio, but business called him out west. Where are you right now? I'm in Los Angeles, sunny California, and I'm bummed that I won't be able to drink champagne with you, but it is only 10 in the morning here, so. You're going to talk to me about it, you know, you're going to describe and explain everything. Totally. All right, let's get right into it. Raj, after many years in the biz... You know, and with Daniel Balud, you recently left the SOM and the beverage director thing to pursue your own, you know, current gig. Um, but before we get into the gig, which there's a lot to discuss, um, tell me a few things. What effect 
Did the pandemic have on your decision to leave what you were doing? If it did, um, what did you do during the pandemic? Um, and, you know, ultimately was the pandemic, you know, the main reason for moving on. So tell me a little about all that. So as, as luck would have had it in my favor, um, I had actually made the decision to leave the restaurants around Christmas the year prior in 2019. Okay. And it was a, a, a culmination of a, a number of things. Firstly, uh, I, I have to say, and I, I want to say this uh, over and over again, I had the best job in the wine business. And I certainly didn't leave because I got tired or because the job wasn't great anymore or because I had any issues with uh, uh, Danielle or, or the company. I mean, really, I couldn't have been luckier to work with such an amazing team and for such an amazing, amazing chef uh, for such a long period of time. That's the reason I right. stayed so long. You know, I had the right. I, I got to taste all the greatest wines in the world. I got to travel a ton. I got to work with amazing people. That was the best. Um, the reasons that I made the decision to move were less about you know me being tired of being on the floor and more about me hitting a point in my life where I thought. Uh, I, I have to think about what the rest of my career looks like and build something that can can really you know relate to me. And uh, you and I had discussed in the past that I had some private clients who I would uh, buy wine for. I did a little bit of corporate consulting here and there. And that consulting business kind of grew into a place where I realized I could make a, a go of it. Um, and uh, so I had planned on leaving. In fact, uh, the restaurants closed, I think, on the 13th of March. I can't remember the exact date now, but whatever that uh, Friday was. Uh, and uh, my last day was set to be April 1st. So I was already uh, en route, so to speak. The pandemic. Wait, so you said you made the decision the prior December. Your yes. leave date was April? Yes. Anyway. Uh, I wasn't about to walk out of the door and leave uh, 17 restaurants, uh, no, no, millions, I know millions of dollars of inventory unmatched. So, so it was really about a transition period. And really, we were searching right. for my replacement. Uh, so the biggest thing that the pandemic affected was that it moved my date to April 1st because business had been, you know, uh, much quieter in the first quarter right. uh, in the restaurants in general. And uh, frankly, with that level of inventory, uh, the CEO and Danielle and myself all agreed that maybe they didn't need a corporate beverage director right at that moment. It was something they could kick that can down the road a little bit, uh, certainly until the end of the summer. And and my initial pledge to Danielle was that I'm not leaving until you're covered. Uh, but then it seemed like he was going to be fine uh, going into the summer, of course. Uh, in retrospect, in hindsight, being 2020, uh, I feel like all of our decision making and, and thought process seems kind of ridiculous <laughs> when right. we saw what happened, you no know, a, a week later. Um, uh, but uh, to continue answering your questions, uh, so the pandemic had no uh, bearing on my decision. However, it did move the timeline up a little bit. And uh, so I took a, a month, a month and a half uh, sitting on my couch like everybody else. And, you know, after 25 years in the restaurant business, I had expected the transition to be extremely uh, brutal uh, <laughs> because, you know, you have to change your whole lifestyle. But right. yet another thing that I was lucky about is that while we were uh, while I was sitting at, on my couch at home with uh, nothing to do, so was everybody else I knew. So I didn't really feel like I was in a bad situation. I didn't feel lonely or lonelier than anybody right. else. Or unproductive. Uh, right. I already knew how to use Zoom for better or worse uh, on account of the fact that we used the, uh, that uh, platform in, in the company prior. 
Uh, and so, uh, you know, it, it, the transition became relatively easy, although, of course, I was in New York City through those first couple of months and it was very high stress and, and a dark time, for sure, uh, eviscerating in many ways. Um, then I uh, got into conversation with Daniel Jonas, uh, the founder of uh, Gracie Events, which is the parent company to the festivals La Pole, uh, La Fête du Champagne, La Table, and uh, a platform called Pressoir.wine, which was really kind of conceived as a wine club and, and just to, to facilitate activities throughout the year that weren't specific to that, uh, to any one specific festival. And uh, we decided that maybe it would be a good thing if we joined forces. Daniel but you always, had a connection to Daniel. A very strong one. Uh, Daniel right. hired me at uh, Restaurant Danielle as the head sommelier back in 2009. Uh, he continued to be the corporate beverage director uh, up through 2016, after which he kept a, a, a sort of a connection and a role, uh, and certainly the title also, but he moved to Lyon that year. And so the, there was a, a little time where he was, he kind of stepped away, but really what he did was he gave me the opportunity to step into that role and he, uh, put me up for it. He told Danielle that I was the right person to help, uh, lead the company forward from an operation standpoint. And so he really put me in that role, uh, always very thankful for that, but we worked together at Restaurant Danielle, and I've worked at all of his festivals for years, so I knew it very well. And the thought kind of crossed my mind, too. It's like, well, uh, what what can I do to build my consulting company into something more? Because I, I don't want to just buy wine for you know corporations or rich people. I want to uh, teach people about wine. I want to communicate about wine to a broad range of consumers. I want to make sure that the wines I love and the regions I love, the people I love to work with, uh, are spoken about and and communicated well to American consumers, which is because this is where we live. Um, and Daniel's amazing at that. His festivals have always done a great job of that. Pressoir, as it was conceived, was intended to continue to do that. And so we came to an agreement and I merged uh, those consulting activities into his company in uh, the beginning of May last year. And so I've been busy. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, right. So, so did you travel at all? Because when, uh, not, when not we get to, into the events, you know, we're right. going to describe some more virtual, you know, some, yeah. you know, yeah. are live and that you were on the road. When when did you start traveling? Well, uh, uh, travel, traveling was impossible last year uh, right. for all of the obvious reasons. Um, we kind of conceived of how La Palais would look. And actually, this came about. Uh, let me take it back to La, Fe La Fete de Champagne last year. Uh, Daniel didn't want to not do an event uh, of any kind and just ignore that, you know, there was a, an event planned or that there was some cultural significance to it. So we did a virtual version of La Fête du Champagne, which involved uh, a series of virtual seminars, um, a grand tasting, which was completely virtual. Uh, so people could purchase uh, the champagnes in various uh, formats and packs from our retail partner and then follow along uh through a guided tasting and interview with each winemaker. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit. Was, um, were, were people hungry at that point to, you know, reconnect, you know, with wine and champagne? I mean, was it successful? Was it was it, pretty know, successful. Well it was pretty successful. I think that at the end of the summer last year, uh, it was getting into the cold months. So we had pretty good attendance, but there was certainly Zoom fatigue, you know, later in the summer. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not sure. And also, frankly, I also just think that, Certainly in New York uh, and for in a lot of places in the world, 
last fall wasn't the the brightest sunniest moment for anybody you know it was better than the spring but it was uh it was getting tough you know we were stuck at home the the there's no end in sight what the rest of our lives look like what the rest of the business look like was tough but so um, to that fast forward if i may just quickly we we did it again with paul a in january or rather we went to to france in january but we we did it in march and that was much more successful i'm happy to talk about that in a second but i didn't mean yeah i want to get into you know more of that um but we'll get to that because i want to take each one um you know about things being dark during the pandemic i mean a lot of your friends in the business i'm sure have stayed the course you know they Mm -hmm. things eventually slowly opened um but i'm sure a bunch have moved on um do you think the pandemic, when you look around, shined a light on, you know, sort of what was right and wrong with hospitality? I mean, people look at it as a glamour industry, you know, uh, restaurants or palaces, chefs or rock stars, sommeliers, you know, are now cool. But a lot of that, you know, a, a lot of that changed. Um, do you think... Do you think people realize, wait a second, the hours are crazy or the way I'm being treated? I mean, do you have a f- sense or a feel of that? Not saying that that happened where you were, maybe it did, maybe it didn't, but just generally, what's your thoughts on that? The work culture of the restaurant business is very, very demanding and difficult. The uh, hours are long. The work, if it uh, if there's some suggestion of like the rock star ideal, uh, I think that that's clearly laid bare as being nonsense today right. because it's such a difficult uh, realm. I mean, just from a business standpoint, uh, there is no business in the world which makes sense at such slim margins with that much effort, work, and, and consequence. Uh, and the sad truth is, that uh, in America, uh, for sure, although this is not untrue elsewhere, um, restaurant workers are mostly, you know, uh, considered as second-class citizens because there's very little in the way of welfare to protect them. Uh, there's almost no chance of saving for retirement in a traditional manner. Uh, there's no personal time off. There's no check-ins about mental health. So did the pandemic uh, shine a light on that? Absolutely. I think it did in many industries. Uh, I think healthcare is possibly even worse off, you know. Um, But uh, there's a lot of thankless jobs that uh, at least were exposed as being what they actually are. Uh, Has that changed or gotten better? I can't speak to that clearly, but I'll tell you that in many restaurants that I observe, and and we do some restaurant consulting now, so I'm starting to see more and more um, of the floor, if you will, uh, the way I did before. But, you know, being taking a step back after 25 years and realizing that the biggest thing that has to change for anything to really change the substantive is um, going to take a lot longer than than one and a half years of realizing that there's a problem. Or accepting, or well, realizing isn't necessarily action either, and I agree it's with certainly you. Certainly not. The well, action's going to take you know a long time. Indeed, but the action also has to uh, kind of play out through the course of history and contracts. Think about it this way, Sam: If I open a, opened a restaurant in two thousand nine at the rent that I was paying then, I built that business plan paying waiters three bucks an hour or so, right. uh, you know, uh, paying insurance for nobody 
maybe a, a manager salary because it was in the doldrums after the 08 crisis at like 50, 60, 70, 80 grand, depending on the size of the restaurant. Uh, the sommelier was in the tip pool. I could pay them uh, you know, a salary of 25 grand and never have to pay them hourly because the law was gray at the time. Fast forward that six years. Uh, the minimum wage is 15 bucks. Uh, that's only has to be paid 15 bucks, but you actually have to pay them more because they're effectively, you know, managing, you know, right. one of your biggest assets. Uh, you have to provide healthcare. You have to provide, uh, care for your employees. And it's not to say that like, this isn't what should be the case. Certainly it should. Uh, but there is no welfare system in America that takes care of its citizens. So the, at that level, when there's such a giant problem, uh, and so it would fall on the, the when it starts to fall on the employers and their business plan was written for a different economic model, the economic model has to change. They ha their right. rent has to change. Their, their subsidies from the government have to change in order to make it viable. Otherwise, the restaurant closes, everyone loses their jobs. And that's that's the, the horizon and the timeline that I'm kind of talking about here. That's that's what's going to have to change, especially in New York City. And the biggest thing there being rent and labor. I mean, those are uh, right. rent was always the most expensive thing. Labor has become the most expensive thing. And if a restaurant was built prior to those changes occurring, which are positive changes, then its viability is in question. Yeah, those sure. are those are all, you know, very good points. And I think to that point. It is going to take a while, and I'm not sure the restaurant industry, you know, is the best self-taught, swiftest. You know, these are people that their heads are down, they're on the ground just really going day to day, and like you said, the margins aren't good. So hopefully, you know, people will see the way, you know, and see the light because, you know, we want everyone to be treated equal, flourish, you know, and have opportunities. Absolutely. Um, so. We'll see how that goes. All right. Let's talk a little about your company, Gracie Events. Let's lead with La Fete de Champagne. Um, this event is coming in November. Uh, last year, as we discussed, you had to cancel the live event and pivot to virtual. Um, good job, by the way. I didn't tell Thank you, you very much. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning you know, in. We had a lot of fun doing it. <laughs> yeah, the, the con, you know, there's good depth to the content. Good well, we, we learned, uh, so Lafette will be uh, occurring in person. It's the first live event that uh, the company will will host, and we're so excited about it. We, You and I had to uh, exchange many, many more emails than we typically do because initially it was set to happen this coming Saturday, the 16th of October. Right. And a few weeks ago, about a month ago, uh, we got – word handed down. It was funny. We were on a team call in the morning and one of my colleagues, uh, who is French, her mother in France texted her and said, the borders are reopening. I can come early November. Uh, Justine, uh, my colleague has, has a little yeah. one who's, who's, uh, mom hasn't been able to visit, uh, 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 here stateside. And so we were like, Oh, that's amazing. That's great. Oh, shoot. The, the FET is going to happen two weeks before. Ah, oh, it's such a shame. I mean, we can't, uh, it's a shame we can't change the date. And then it clicked in all of our minds kind of at the same moment. We're saying, no, we can't not change the date. Uh, the notion that we would have a champagne party without any champenois here uh, is completely right. anathema to what the the whole culture and point of what we do is. And so we moved the date, which was a uh, you know kudos to to the team I work with that managed to pull this off. I, I'm in awe every day, uh, but we managed to move it a month later. So uh, now it'll occur, as you said, from the 6th through the 13th. Now, the reason we start the 6th, which is the prior, prior Saturday, is that frankly, when we started planning for this, 
we didn't know what the fall would look like. We didn't know if people could be in a room together. We were still at, you know, 10 people at max at a gathering. Um, very few people were vaccinated. Um, we didn't know for sure that the vaccines uh, had that level of efficacy because the uh, the number of people who had been vaccinated was fairly small. So in June, uh, as we did uh, this past January for La Pole, uh my colleague uh, Max uh, and Peter Liam and I went to France and developed some content for some specific seminars so that if everything were to shut down again, th touch wood, not happening, feeling good about this fall, but we just didn't know back then. Uh, so we built a bunch of uh, seminars and, and a bunch of content. We spent two weeks in Champagne, visiting everybody, tasting with them, reconnecting with them. Um, interviewing uh, winemakers in the vines, in the cellars. And so I think we've developed some pretty rich content. We learned a lot from doing seminars last year for La Fette, which were really mostly interactive with the winemakers and right. um, were great content, but were maybe less informative because they, they tended to be conversations and conversations can sometimes right. meander yeah. or, 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 and, you know, especially with a set amount of time. And also we focused a lot more on like, the the guided tasting aspect, which uh, I've come to realize, I think that most people want to taste wine on their own. They're they're in interested in what we have to offer for some to learn something, uh, if it's not in person. Then we kind of switch that a little bit up in during the Palais. We managed to spend a month in uh, Burgundy developing similar content. And that was truly amazing. It was also just amazing to be anywhere except for New York City <laughs> by that right. point. Uh, right. You and, were and, hungry. Oh, man, it was such a peculiar time because uh, we had a 6 p.m. curfew every day, which we learned how to flaunt a little bit as, oh, as the, as the weeks it. went on. Uh, well, yeah, the, the France was lo pretty much locked right. down. Yeah, it's pretty much locked down. Anywhere. Uh, but we had a great time. It was great to see the winemakers. And also, frankly, the winemakers were happy to see us, which, you know. Uh, you know, in Burgundy, they're overrun. So it's a it's a treat when they actually are excited to spend time with you. Yeah, uh, <laughs> they're, they're even more remote, you know, than we were during the pandemic. Now, back to Lafayette. Just yeah. Just give people an idea, you know, okay. if they close their eyes, you know, the live event, which is coming back, you know, visualize what it is. It's sort of a smorgasbord so in the, a very yeah, good way yeah, of yeah. champagne, you know. Yeah. So t talk to me about it, the producers, yeah, the depth, absolutely. you know. So we, we lead into the the final Saturday, the finale, with a, a handful of smaller dinners. We're going to do an amazing dinner with some great back vintages from Champagne de Rapier uh, in the Oak. Uh, amazing property, great family, and uh, very excited to have them uh, join us. Uh, we're going to do a super cool lunch, which sadly sold out almost immediately as it uh, wow. Went on sale with uh, Vincent Laval, a uh, tiny producer in Cumier. Uh, we'll talk more about him, you and I, uh, towards the end of this program. Um, we are doing a dinner with Olivier Krug, which is super, super exciting, of course. Sure. Because uh, he's he's the best and the wines are spectacular. He's a very, uh, he's a very magnan. He's, he's, he's a very personable guy. He's gregarious, magnanimous, personable, right. yes. all of the stuff. And, and uh, you know, we're, the ability to show some older Grand Cuvées is going to be one of the highlights, although plenty of other fancy wines. And then we'll lead into the, the finale. So uh, a grand tasting with uh, all of the producers who are in attendance, uh, pouring their current releases. And right. dozens and, and dozens, right? Dozens and dozens. So we, we're using and, a space and, that... And, and, 
and uh, multiple SKUs from some of these guys. Uh, uh, yes, for sure. Three to four wines from each producer. Yeah. So you really get a sense of it for each producer, be it uh, a house or a grower. We're using a very large space to do this, uh, Pure 60. And uh, because it's it's all dedicated to the tasting, we're able to really spread people out. We'll have some of the most amazing and exciting restaurants that have uh, – captured our attention over the course of the last year uh, participating, including uh, a client of mine, uh, the Maka Indian restaurant on the Lower East Side. Where the Maybe the hottest restaurant in New York right yeah, now. Yeah, we, we should talk about that a little bit later, too, because that's part of our restaurant consulting gig. And I'm just super excited to write the yeah, wine list for Indian restaurants. They're finally. killing it. Um, right. Uh, Saigon Social. Uh, Helen uh, is a dear friend who used to work with me at Danielle, and uh, she has this amazing restaurant on the Lower East Side. If you haven't heard about it, you should check that no, out. I do. Uh, of course, uh, Chef Danielle will make an appearance with uh, right. something from a pizzeria. So um, the opportunity in uh, the beautiful light right on the river, uh, granted with a, a view of New Jersey. Uh, yeah. We <laughs> so like that, you and we I, do. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's not the prettiest part of it, but it doesn't look so no. bad. Um, and the opportunity to taste uh, hundreds of champagnes uh, and, and really to taste them with the producers so you really get that intimate moment and experience. That evening, we'll be hosting our gala dinner, uh, producers in attendance, older wines from their cellars, collectors from the U.S., uh, all over the U.S. Uh, who are coming, bringing wines from their cellars. And it's truly uh, uh, an amazing moment of people sharing wine, getting excited about the region. And, you know, Lafette is peculiar and long predates my entry into the, the organization, but it was really conceived uh, by Peter and by Daniel, Peter Liam and Daniel Jonas, um, as a place where the region could be celebrated without drawing distinctions and lines that are meant to divide. And that specifically is with regards to the structure of the the business of champagne, you know, people who grow grapes, people who sell right. the grapes, people who make their own champagne, people who or make their their own champagne from their own vineyards, uh, houses that kind of do both, houses that only buy grapes. Um, we represent everything at this festival, and it's really about the region as a whole. And and I really respect that immensely. And it's one of the things I loved about this event. I've been yeah. lucky enough to work it since the first one, and um, I can't wait for the next one. And also, let's be honest. We're so sick of having these tiny parties or, you know, having a, such a hard time getting together. This is going to be the first real opportunity and the, the festival will live up to its name. Uh, it will I, be a, I think a, fete, a lot of, a a lot of sure. people are thinking like you. And <laughs> fortunately, and it's served it well in the past, the space is so big it's huge, um, yeah. and spread it's out huge. that, you know, as far as a public event, you know, but, it's, but, it's, but it's I can't overstate. Yeah, but I can't overstate the importance of the fact that people need to feel safe and also people need to feel comfortable. Many of right. our, our uh, longstanding customers are uncomfortable in that environment, and that's why we've developed the the virtual content. So it's, it wasn't just exclusively a, a stopgap. I said, you know, I even if we are able to have this party in person, and now we are, uh, we still want to be able to offer something to everybody. And so yeah. uh, all of the seminars also will be available to the trade Um uh, for free. Uh, you just need to reach out. And also anybody who's following along with the, the seminars can access the wines that we're featuring uh, via our retail partner. So, so there is, right. you know, it's different at home, but it doesn't mean that it's not convivial. It doesn't mean that it's uh, not connected That's to it. our spirit it, at all. It's done well. Um, while we're on champagne, um, let's talk about that for a second. Tell mm -hmm. me about some champagnes, producers, 
um, and visiting in trends, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. in your travels and in setting this up, you know, what's kind of sort of stuck out, grabbed your attention? Well, it's been a very difficult vintage this year, 2021 in Champagne. And that kind of reminds me of a few things that I think are worth paying attention to. But uh, I, I, I'm not one to speak about trends because I think... Uh, <laughs> the, I don't know if trends uh, is a good word for Champagne. Oh, I hate that word. I hate that word for yeah. almost anything, you know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Raj, Raj, I retract that. But tell me about some, you know, interesting wines, makers, you know, things sure. you've come across. So, so, so a hand, uh, you know, it's very difficult to pick out uh, uh, specific things, but I want to call on a couple of experiences that uh, the team and I had while we were in Champagne. One winery I'm super excited about uh, and have been for quite some time is the domain Pierre Payard, uh, Antoine and Kenton Payard, who took over from their father uh, in the middle of the last decade, sort of progressively. I had the, the luck and experience. Peter had introduced Daniel to them just around the time I started at Danielle. And uh, the brothers made a non-vintage cuvee uh, that was our house cuvee with Danielle's uh, ah. name and, and our collaboration in terms of the dosage. It was such a great wine. We did really well with it for a number of years. We wanted to switch it up and we moved on. But um, uh, now uh, I'm very happy to see that amongst the vintage wines and the single vineyard wines, uh, Antoine and Canton's own stamp is finally starting to be seen because, you know, for the, the nature of Champagne is it's such a long game. They've been selling wines that were made by the previous generation. And so today, I think uh, we'll get an opportunity during La Fette to really see some of uh, the brothers' work. And I think that they're some of the most exciting, uh, shall we call them, new producers in Champagne. I mean, the domain's been around a long time, yeah. but, uh, but, it, but there's some great evolution there. I think there's a, a, a huge uh, movement on both the house and the grower side uh, to kind of bridge the gap in between. Um, and so you see producers like Onrio and Rotor, uh, I'd like to just pull those two out because they come to mind, but not because they're the only ones by any means, right. who, are, who, are, example. Who, who are growing their own grapes uh, on land that they own to a great extent, but also purchasing grapes, but very often being very, very active in deciding, uh, making important decisions about the farming and moving the farming in the direction of uh simply better farming, but specifically right. organics and, and uh, in Rotor's case and in Rotor's case to some degree, biodynamics. Gilles de, de la Rousière, who's the, the president of uh, Champagne on Rio and, and all of their companies, uh, he actually said this to me in Burgundy in January, but it, it rang through and really was visible to me when we visited their vineyards in, in the summer uh, in Champagne. He said, basically, one has to come to the understanding that we can't farm carelessly and, and still make anything that's uh, interesting or, or viable in the market. Uh, the absolute bare minimum for quality is going to very soon be that we're at least organic. And I thought that was very forward thinking and smart for a CEO of a big company that hasn't always been that way, but is making right. this, taking the steps to go in that direction. Rotor is very well uh, known for their commitment to biodynamics, right. and, and they know, uh, uh, you know, Jean Baptiste Lacayon might be the, one of the most knowledgeable people about farming uh, right. amongst dudes who wear suits. <laughs> what, what, you, what you said about the farming, um, where more people are moving towards it, applies to all of our. 
all of agriculture, by the way. It, it, <laughs> if we don't, it, it does. If it we does. don't change yeah. the way we farm around the world from here out, you know, we're kind of screwed. I mean, it has I to think, go to sustainability, regeneration. I couldn't organics. agree more. I couldn't agree more. But, but Sam, that's not uh, a quantifiable reality or has not historically no. been the, the quantifiable reality in Champagne. Champagne's still a place where organics don't really amount to uh, a large percentage. So the fact that I'm seeing that and forgive me for using this word, trend, uh, is very uh, heartwarming. And on the flip side right. of that, to see growers who have come to the the fiscal reality of being not able to acquire more land because simply the costs have become too high, land prices are very high, to moving into a, a model that we saw in Burgundy a lot in the last two decades because the prices of land jumped up right. there first – uh, or, or in a more uh, dramatic fashion, where they move towards this uh, negotiant model, in fact, and they're purchasing grapes, but again, controlling the farming, paying attention to the land, and with a great deal of care. Uh, so I, I like the fact that um, the stark difference between those two categories of champagne has become murkier and they've become yeah. closer and closer together. I, I, I like that because it's more unified, it's more coherent, and it's and definitely both important. Yeah, and it's know. a positive. It's a positive for sure for consumables. Right. You want that stuff to taste good. Good segue by bringing Burgundy up. Um, oh, that place. You you guys <laughs> also do La Paulet, which is really the granddaddy of you know the events. And recently, you started a thing called La Table, which is a, a nod towards the wines of the Rhone. Exactly. Um, those events will be taking place in 2022? That's correct. So the tablet uh, dates are to be confirmed, but early in the year. And then March, we will be back with La Palais. La Palais was amongst the last big parties uh, in the, uh, yeah. the before times. And, uh, uh, you know, thank God it happened because we all needed that party. But also, we are very lucky and, and happy that, you know, we didn't uh, incur any kind of disaster as a result of it. Think about the timing. Is there a set date for La Palais or are you working on firming that up? You will get the press release in, okay. in due time, but yeah, yeah, we're we're pretty set on it. Uh, it'll be in March. Uh, you know, uh, the reason we haven't uh, confirmed the date also for uh, January for La Table is just making sure that everything lines up, people can come. But uh, you can think about it as the end of January, uh, okay. twenty twenty two for the Table and the middle of March. Um, Paulet is. I hate to use the word similar, but it's similar to La Fate in the sense that it's a big celebration of Burgundy and, you know, the producers come in and there's pourings and all these lunches and events. Sure. Um, well, I, mean, I should say ahead. that they're all, they're all similar in format, but nothing should be said to be similar to the Fet. If anything, everything is similar to the Palais because that was the initial right, event. That's that what I meant. Started. Right. That's what and, I meant. and it's based off of uh, a party that happens in Merceau. Uh, and, and really all over Burgundy, but the big one is in Merceau, the La Palais de Merceau, which is a, a hundred-year-old celebration where the vigneron from the village bring wines to share with their their colleagues uh, and friends. Uh, it's a pretty glorious lunch. Usually starts at one and ends at midnight, and there's a little more drunk driving than I'm comfortable with. But it's uh, <laughs> um, the, the, the beauty yeah. of bringing it to New York is you got to bring the winemakers here, but then and everyone make, gets right. to go in an Uber afterwards, so it's much much safer. Yeah. And Tablet is, um, you know, I'm like you. I'm a big 
fan of Rhone wines north yeah, yeah. over south, but love both. Table is an ode and a festival to the wines of the Rhone region, right? Exactly. And it connects uh, both north and south in celebration because I think in the U.S. market, they've been thought of more as the same uh, historically than than anywhere else in France, for sure. I mean, the, they're pretty different regions, but the overlap in spirit is great. And, and it's uh, it's a lot of fun. It's a smaller event, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, you're you're talking about um, wines that are potentially underappreciated. Would you agree with me? I'm not talking about quality or the makers, but, you know, the Rhone wines, do they get the props and appreciation in the wine world beyond sommeliers? I think that... uh Historically, for sure, there's been some love for the wines of the Rhone in the U.S., if only because Chateauneuf du Pape is fun to say. Uh, But uh, but I'm not sure if it's grossly underrated. I certainly think that uh, in terms of the value of the wines in the open market, the kind of attention that people pay to them with fine food, perhaps, uh, it's possible that they've been a little overlooked. Uh, Maybe you're asking the wrong guy. I worked for 11 years for Daniel Boulud, who's from Lyon. And the Rhone is uh, one of uh, the most important uh, categories of, of wine that's beloved and taken care of there. I mean, uh, I, I agree with you, but, you know, doing this show and talking to everybody from around the world, um, I think there are a lot of, you know, fans. But I think there are a lot of people, you know, that haven't had the exposure or, um, you know, they just don't know as much about it. That has changed through the yeah, years. Yeah, and yeah, there's perhaps, a lot true, of, yeah. you know, good cheerleaders. Um but sure. yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I think what you said is accurate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah I had a weird I think it's only getting better. Yeah. And um, I think Table did that. I know Thomas and Dustin. You know, did yeah, the Rubul, to Northern. Yeah, Great. so I mean, things are happening in a good way. Um, Raj, we have to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk to you a little more about Burgundy. Um, I certainly want to talk to you about Pressoir. Um, and a few other things. So we're talking to Raj Vaidya. Raj is uh, the director of operations at Gracie Events, all these great events that are, you know, upon us. Um, you're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Okay, we're back. We're back with my guests. Raj Vaidya. Raj, I wanted to talk to you in the vein of or in the subject of Burgundy. Um, I wanted to ask you, because you've been around it 
and you've literally been on the ground in Burgundy, does it bother you that Burgundy is made by literally farmer winemakers? I mean, these guys are out in the field as much as, you know, they're in the cellar. Um, many of them are organic and even biodynamic. Um, a lot of these wines are made in small batches. And getting to my point, these wines are now almost inaccessible and priced beyond comprehension. I mean, is that where Burgundy was supposed to go? And I'll have a follow-up question that'll sort of, you know, the follow-up question will be, you know, where are the values? What should we drink? But does it bother you that, you know, it's like this big boomer rich guy thing? You know, it does bother me that the audience is necessarily different on account of the fact that the value has gone so high. But I should say this. I mean, um, there's a lot of contributing factors to that, the biggest of which is completely out of the hands of the Burgundians, uh, which is to say that there's very little wine. There's a giant market for it. And off that, amongst those markets, the two uh, driving factors are, are, you know, wealthy people in Asia and wealthy people in America who want what they want and are willing to pay whatever it takes. That is a little painful because uh, I see certainly that the next generation of wine lovers, and I'm not only talking about collectors, I'm talking about people who drink wine in restaurants. I'm talking about sommeliers and, and cavis or other retailers, uh, journalists uh, for sure, uh, and just, you know, people who love wine. Burgundy is often completely ignored by them because they have to ignore it because they can't afford it. The barrier to entry right. is too high. The access is low. And then, you know, once that uh, becomes pervasive, it fades out of the psyche, actually. And, you know, I have a lot of young friends who are really robust wine drinkers who never even think about these wines. It's, it's not even in their consciousness. So right. there's a bunch of things that I think are important to engage with to, to avoid that happening to a region that I think is so important. We don't want, I don't want to see that becoming exclusively the playground of the rich. There's a, a couple of things that uh, Daniel started to do uh, before I joined the company, and I actually participated a fair bit with one of the initiatives, which was that he created a sommelier scholarship, which uh, relied on support from producers in Burgundy, uh, at first, uh, to to raise funds to then take sommeliers from the U.S. Uh, on a trip to Burgundy to meet the producers, see them in the fields, as you said, to see them in their cellars, oftentimes in their cellars, because let's be frank, it off, almost always happened in January. <laughs> right. uh, and it was cold outside. But um, really giving them a sense for the culture, the concept of sharing wine with each other, the what's so special about the place and what's interesting about the wines. But, you know, without cultural context and, and a human context, it can be very hard for that to come into people's psyche. So uh, kudos to, to Daniel for coming up with that. And right. we did a lot of Great work on idea. that. And it, it's something that's going to continue to grow. Um, I'm, I'm getting tired of saying this, but it seems like we've been stuck in, in some sort of legal limbo of uh, establishing it as a, a proper 501c3. But that is coming <laughs> in the new year, we hope. We're <laughs> sure by our lawyers. What do I know? I mean, yeah. I think the pandemic actually kind of uh, our timing was kind of unfortunate with regards to our application. But uh, I'm convinced that it's moving forward and we can continue to you know teach that that concept. And I think the same thing will be true for Champagne and then down the road for other regions. And we'll be able to, to educate that way. The other thing that I think is super important is to focus away from the rarity and expense and more closely on the producers. And I think that's something that we do pretty well 
because our relationships are are more important <laughs> to us than almost anything, especially in places like Burgundy. Um, the story of the winemaker, who's doing something interesting, what they're doing, what they're actually doing in the vines, for example, you know, uh, I think is super important. During the Palais, which was all virtual uh, in 2021, in January, uh, excuse me, uh, in March, um, Pascaline, my dear friend uh, and absolute hero in the wine world, Pascaline Peltier, yes, um, frequent guest on this show. Yeah, she's a regular. She agreed to help uh, uh, put together one of the seminars, and we spoke to a bunch of vignerons, some very famous, some less so, and see what they were doing in terms of farming. And that gave us the opportunity to shine a light also on some sort of young up and coming producers, but also some classic producers who've been around a long time but have recognized the importance of, of farming. And really, we we did a deep dive. It was great, uh, a very great learning experience for me and for many others, I believe. Um, that sort of focus, again, on the place as opposed to the price, I think is very helpful because, you know, a lot of the wines that we talked about are not uh, excessively expensive uh, and offer incredible value and real character and real depth. Uh, and All I right, just, so let's, uh, let's get into that. Let's get into that. So for everyone else, <laughs> you know, <laughs> what are some of the good alternatives to inaccessible and expensive and, you know, expensive Burgundy? And I say alternatives because, you know, people have been drinking Alligote, you know, for years and some people never heard of it. Alligote should be paid but, a lot more attention to. And I'm sure. not pointing that out for you to get into. But talk to me about, you know, how do we... How do we okay. drink well, burgundy? Let me give you, you a know. tidbit. I've got, you, I've got the insider scoop for you. It's hotter now than it was before. So when a place gets warmer, uh, you know, in a region that's as diverse as burgundy, although it's, it's two grapes, effectively one landscape, there's a lot of side valleys. There's diverse a lot of cooler, to climates. cooler appellations than right. others. So start to think about those cool places, places like Saint-Romain, uh, Pernod-Vergelas. Pernod-Vergelas is super interesting to me right now. To some extent, Savigny-les-Bones, although you'd have to look to the north-facing slopes to see the big difference. In times which have gotten quite a bit warmer, these cooler appellations might be able to offer not only great value because their status as far as appellations is is not as uh, lofty as uh, places like Von Romane and Corton, um, but also there might be a more interesting level of balance to be found in the wines on account of the fact that they are cooler. Uh, they do see a little less direct sunlight and uh, less heat from the day. So that's one little tidbit I think is useful. Uh, there's a lot of young producers who are starting out who are not able to buy their own uh, vines. And so the old historic concept in Burgundy was that the negociants blend stuff and the growers make uh, you know more terroir-specific wines. And there's some sort of inherent um, greatness to the, uh, to the grower model because it's so tiny and so artisan. Well, Tiny and artisan uh, translates into the world of negociants on the big and small scale, but certainly you should look to uh, producers who are who are negociants but are young and starting out, and you know working with interesting appellations like Chouet Le Bon. Uh, bone itself, I think, remains um, a totally underrepresented uh, uh, appellation in the quality scale, especially. Uh, especially at the Premier Cru level, where you're really right. seeing wines of, of equal quality to Volnay Premier Cru, Pomar Premier Cru, uh, Chassagne Monarchet, and Pouligny, even on occasion. And uh, 
way, way less expensive and more accessible. Uh, but very often you're looking towards the negociant model in order to be able to see that today. And the reason is simply just acquiring land is insanely expensive. Right. The biggest reason that acquiring land has become insanely expensive is because of outside investment and just the fact that most people who are buyers now are either a couple of French billionaires or or people in the similar category from the U.S. or, or China, Hong Kong, Japan, et cetera. Yeah, um, that's changed. Yeah. Well, it's changed what uh, the future of Burgundy will look like because those models are not money-making models, but they're also not uh farming models really you know the 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 right. concept is Important the only way point. the only way that kind of investment gets paid off is by selling the investment <laughs> at a profit right. uh and so the hope and dream is that most of them are vanity projects because that means that they'll keep making great wine forever and a lot of them are so that that's good um in that sense although it makes the wines expensive it also kind of uh, uh you know protects it to some degree because if it can be a uh, a metier that doesn't rely on um, viability in the market <laughs> uh, then perhaps uh, that works out but yeah. remember that there, that burgundy isn't just the Cote d'Or there's uh, even within the Cote d'Or there's lesser known appellations but I feel like pe people should pay more attention to uh, appellations like Ossidores, uh Sombria near Chablis Chablis and Petit Chablis as appellations I think Petit Chablis especially which was a, a freakishly cold area and therefore a separate uh, defined area that was thought of as like lesser. But really Petit Chablis is not lesser in quality than Chablis Appalachian. Uh, it's just a different place and it's cooler and it's fresher. And uh, with and a little bit of luck, it tends not to be the place that gets hailed or frosted uh, aggressively, which has been a reality. Uh, both have been realities in Chablis for quite some time. Those and then are, I'd urge people to look a little further south. You know, um, despite the warmth of the region, uh, the varieties and the genetics of the Macon and the Chalonet are pretty well suited uh, to, to making wine in those regions. And I, I think that historically they've been sort of shunned in terms of the quality spectrum uh, and have never reached crazy prices, which is good. Uh, but there's some really, really intriguing and compelling wines being made down there. In the Macon and Chalonet. Absolutely. So those are all, I mean, there's a lot to bite into there. Um, and I thank you for, you know, pointing us towards that. So the reality is that there are still accessible and delicious wines in Burgundy. Um, just a couple of quick things. And then I want to talk to Presswar, talk about Presswar for a couple of minutes. Great. Um, I want to point out, and this is not negative at all, but it's more of a service to my listeners. Um, you know, that your events are not cheap. Um, they appeal to, you know, anyone, but there's a lot of, you know, upper echelon wine lovers and all of that. Um, the collectors. Um, so it's a great opportunity for that person and it's open to anyone else um you know so i wanted to point that out but you know there's a cost to anything of that quality um the last thing i wanted to ask you before press war is does the auction market blow up stuff like burgundy i mean are they not helping are they inconsequential because the numbers far, far, i see far, in, from, far from inconsequential the auction market is the market in burgundy and it's uh it's frightening uh, it is frightening for, so for i'm sure. right about what i'm you're seeing. absolutely it's, right about that yeah. it's, and there are definitely a handful of culprits that are culprits 
Totally, totally. And yeah. going back to what you said about the the expense, for sure, uh, Burgundy events are expensive. Period. And our our dinners when we have to uh, acquire the wines from Burgundians to serve, they get astronomical pretty quickly. And you know, we're yeah. buying wines in the same market as, as everybody else, no. even if we're buying. Like directly. I said, there's no negative to yeah, that. No, 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 just, that. You that, know, that, somebody that, says this sounds cool. They go online and they go, you know, eight hundred dollars yeah. for a lunch. No, to, totally. You know. and, and and the galas tend to be pretty expensive. It's true, but uh, as you yeah. can imagine, it costs, especially uh, you know, even pre-COVID, but maybe even more so now, it costs a lot to throw a party for four hundred people. But I would like to say that we, thanks to Presswar, and this will be our lead in, uh, I think that's your job, but I got you on this one, Sam. Uh, thanks to Presswar. Raj, let me tell you about some more good burgundies. <laughs> no, no, go ahead. Tell me there's about Presswar. a range of possibilities of the kinds of experiences that people can engage with. And that's kind of the point of Presswar um, as a platform is that, you know, between our club and, and the virtual events we do and, and the live dinner, dinners we do, we do, do, we do offer access and, and experiences at various price levels. And that, that's important. That's important to us for the same reasons, as I said, making the regions more accessible and, and just making sure they don't get forgotten. Uh, well, for I sure. can attest to that because the things you discussed, you know, there are, you know, there, I don't know if it happened or not, but there was, you know, uh, uh, an event, uh, the Hill of Cortone, you yeah. know, and then there's another event, you know, where there's like newer Burgundian winemakers, you know, where the exposure and even the cost, you know, varied, which gives, you know, anybody an opportunity, like you said, point of entry, yeah, can yeah. Be, you Please. Know, which is great. Yeah, for sure. Check out uh, our website, presswire.wine, because we do events often. We're continuously building the the schedule of events. My colleague, Edouard Bourgeois, who's a truly brilliant communicator about wine and definitely not exclusively a fancy wine guy, despite his very French name. Uh, I, I, I love his the fact that he brings the same level of excitement and passion to the wines, for example, of the Loire Valley that we're serving tomorrow night, all that they're serving tomorrow night without, in right. my absence, because I'm here in L.A., uh, as he does to the Hill of Cortone and to the great wines of the Côte de Nuit and on and on and on. And so the, he, for sure, check it out. He, he do a bunch of good stuff. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad, you know, we spread it out that there are events, you know, for everyone. And like you said, Loire, not just Burgundy. And Edward is a pretty damn good piano player. Did you know that? I did know that. I'm glad that you know okay. that as well, Sam. I'm well, very I saw talented from the uh, <laughs> special club thing that he did. Yeah, we did. I an saw event. some clips. I mean, this guy was just well. He, you I'm know, like, Edward created the whole thing. He paired music to the wines that we were going to pour and then performed the music. And uh, he's just he's just the best. Very cool. <laughs> very cool. Um, all right. So at the end of the show, we will spend a few minutes where everyone can get all the information on everything. Great. But nobody leaves the show without answering our wine list. You did it once before. I'd be curious to compare. Same questions. We're about to approach our 200th show, and we've asked everybody. Do you have my answers this. from last time? I don't remember. I don't, <laughs> and I screwed up. I think it's more fun because I don't want to be – I don't want to lead you or whatever, but I, I'll post them side by side because okay. well, we I'll, do post I'll answer, I'll answer with current answers anyway, so. Well, that's what I want, yeah. you know, where your head is at now. All right, so first question is – and you may have, you know, sort of addressed this in some ways, but what are you drinking now? What's – you know, is it champagne for the La Fed? Is it, you know, Loire because Edward's doing something? Are you trying new stuff in the fridge? Somebody bring you stuff? You know, what's what's your current taste now? 
So the Indian summer has uh, left me stuck in uh, sort of a summer mindset. Champagne is certainly uh, very high on my list, not just because the event's coming up, frankly. I, I, uh, I recently told a new friend that uh, I, I shamelessly have a, a champagne agenda to get people to drink champagne as wine. I'm uh, with you. Uh, and, and so I, I do drink a lot of champagne. It eats okay. up most of my budget. Uh, I've been Wait, drinking- Wait, can I ask you something? Wait, sure, but sure. I didn't mean to- do... Please. Is it, is it hard for you and you don't have to? When I, if I say to you, give me a favorite or two, do you try to stay away from that just because there's so many and you're so embedded in all of this or can you i don't want I can, to back you i can i absolutely can i mean um i, I it, and it doesn't preclude uh, any of the other great wines i love but i'll, I'll point right. out again you know just currently so uh sunday this past i had uh the first sort of new version of uh rotors uh Call it two five two two five two. Is it two five two or two four two? Now I'm forgetting, but um, uh, I think it's two four two. I, I was actually at the. You're tasting. getting ahead of things here. Uh. Go ahead. So Rotorua two four two, so which is uh, you know as Jean Baptiste Lacayon explained to me, uh, I thought very eloquently. He decided to no longer make uh, a consistent wine when he can make a better wine, and so kind of following the model of the. Uh, Editions that uh, Krug makes, uh, for example, uh, it'll, it'll be a non-vintage or a multi-vintage wine, which is uh, unique. Uh, and so it's, it replaces Brut Premier, and I think it's absolutely spectacular. We're going to talk about one of my favorite producers in Champagne, and, and this comes from a place of love as much as it does of critical tasting, uh, Vincent Laval, because I'd like to hear right. your thoughts of it while you sip it while I'm finishing my, my morning coffee here in L.A. All and, right. Um, uh, a shout out to a couple of dear, dear friends, uh, Rodolphe Peters, uh, Raphael Boresh, uh, Alexander Chartagne, uh, and uh, Jérôme Prévost. These guys probably make up like 60% of my total wine consumption. Really? Uh, which which means that I have to work very hard because it's not an inexpensive habit. Uh, no. But But let me go to a couple of other things that I'm drinking because I, I, I've been drinking a fair bit of uh, wine from the Jura of late. Uh, I love Stefan Tiso and I've been drinking a couple of bottles, both sparkling and, and still wines from him. Uh, not much Loire been in my glass in the last few weeks, peculiarly, uh, but a fair bit of German Riesling, uh, again, yeah. know, it's, it's just been so warm in New York. It's funny. It's colder in LA right now than it is in, in New yeah. York. Um, and so Peter Lauer, uh, Lauer, uh that barrel well, X, yeah. I could just drink a bottle of that in like 15 seconds. And it's very reasonable. Yeah. So cheap. And then, uh, I always say everyone should drink more cabinet Riesling. The 2020 vintage in the Mosul is spectacular. I got to taste, I, I, against my rules because I bought a case of each with the intention of aging them uh, because I had a great bottle of Willy Schaefer Domprost Cabinet uh, 2015 the other night. I bought uh, one case of each, the Domprost and the Himmelreich 2020, and I couldn't help myself. I pulled a bottle of each to taste, and man, they're delicious. So uh, Those are good ones. That, that's a lot of it. It'll change as the weather gets cold, but it, it, you know, I'm okay with it staying warm. <laughs> that's a trove of some good stuff, and like I said, I'm going to post everything. Um, all right, so this is a good one to go back and compare. I ask you and I ask you favorite wine and food pairing. Not something you <laughs> eat every night, every week, every month, but something that, you know, is like a good, ooh, ah, this works. 
Yeah, I had something the other day that kind of blew my mind. I, I've been on this kick of the, you know, because apparently I need more expensive habits. So I, I buy fish at the <laughs> green market all the time. And this is the time of year in New York. I, it might be fleeting. I probably shouldn't tell everybody this because now I'm going to have to compete for these pieces. But uh, blowfish from Long Island, uh, you get the tails from the green market right now. And it's kind of a blubbery fish. Uh, I put them on the grill and they make you look like a genius because they're kind of a, a blank palate. They basically taste like chicken. And because they're so blubbery, you can't really overcook them. <laughs> you can leave them on too long and they get more caramelized, but they don't get tough or anything like that. And so I had spiced uh, some of those with a little bit of miso. I put them on the grill. They got really nice and caramelized outside. And uh, I, I was like very much thinking about champagne and white wine, but we had a red wine open uh, while I was with friends drinking this. Uh, or, or tasting this dish. And um, it was a wine that I got turned on to in the spring, a producer in, uh, uh, I guess, San Luis Obispo, Santa Rita Hills, or, or, or rather uh, inland a bit from there, but Southern California. I'm not sure exactly where this vineyard is, to be honest with you, but it's uh, oh, Santa, Bar Santa Barbara area, uh, a winery called Amaviv. And it's a, a, a blend, a field blend. Uh, I don't even know what the grape varieties are in there. Um, so it's probably it's a bunch of grape variety. Yeah, it could be anywhere few, from like three to eight or whatever. It's quite a few. I know. So, so the, that, the that label Scar of the Sea buys uh, grapes from this vineyard, but this is a, a wine that they make themselves. And I was just like, it was light, fruity, um, a little bit salty, a little bit spicy, uh, and and with the the spiced miso and that richness of the blowfish, uh, I thought it was a home run. And I like it. I like it when I look like I know what I'm doing. You know, even if it was well, by chance. <laughs> I could also tell you that nobody has ever thrown that one up as a. Uh, if I can't buy blowfish next weekend on uh, so the green market, just, I'm going to be mad. Just a side <laughs> note, you know, I, I we have a boat. We fish a lot off of Long Island, and oh, cool. You ju you just throw a little chum pot down. And you get blowfish by the dozen, right? But it's and isn't it? It's, it seems seasonal, right? I mean, uh, at least they're not they available more, at the market outside toward, of this time. More towards the end of the season, they're yeah, available. Yeah. They seem to come around. End like, of summer. That that's a good one. Think about this one. Third question. Um, I know there was COVID and the pandemic, and I know you're a busy guy. But do you have any favorite wine restaurants and or bars? absolutely? Are you, you kidding know, me? Where you walk in, the vibe, the list. The creativity. Let me hear yours. And okay. I'll preface this by saying whatever you say is what you like, but it doesn't exclude anyone. And there are other places, but these are the ones you're mentioning now. Totally. And I, I and I'll also add the caveat that if there's places that I like to go to that are hard to get into, I'm not going to tell you about them. You got to okay. figure them out for yourself. But right, a, a, handful, a handful of my favorites. Well, anyway, it's not like anything's that uh, secret in New York anymore. But also, frankly, post COVID, the number of options are more limited for sure, unfortunately, because a bunch yes. of places have closed or are, haven't reopened fully. Uh, I go to the Four Horsemen as often as I can. I think it's one of the greatest wine restaurants in New York, and that's true pre and through and post-COVID. I, I totally agree. It's one of the few places with a real cellar. The food is fantastic, really out of this world. And Nick Curator is a great chef. Amazing chef. Uh, ha has some history in that my favorite all-time restaurant in New York. He, he, he worked there, Franny's Brooklyn. Yeah. And, I think uh, Nick may be writing a cookbook. I think he might be. And uh, that's good news because uh, some of yeah. the magic that he does right. should be shared. We love that one. Give me more. All right. Uh, in... 
in my neighborhood, uh, it's a little bit tough to drink great wine because there's like 6 million restaurants and, and many of them are not that good, frankly. But right. I got to shout out Hearth, uh, one of my favorite restaurants in New York in general. And also, it's, it's not the fanciest wine list. They used to have a bunch of older wine back in the day, but now it's uh, more focused on, on you know, younger vintages, but very well curated, uh, very honest, and, uh, and just a lovely vibe. Well, it's been there forever, and Paul Greco was the wine guy for a long time. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they got rid of all of Paul's wines by now. It's been more than yeah. ten years that he's <laughs> no, been out I'm there. No, I'm not alluding. Yeah, but now, but now that you mention it, you know one of the best places to drink champagne, and this is this is probably going to piss Paul off a little bit that I say this, but it remains true because he's not much of a champagne guy. Is terroir in Tribeca, so you should definitely go there as well. Uh, and then, jeez, yeah. uh, where else have I been drinking? Um, Company always great. It's been a while since yep. I've been, but uh, they place. had a cool outdoor situation. Actually, uh, hopefully that they can they can keep that up. Um, I think that uh, everyone should go to Tamaka, the restaurant I mentioned. Uh, I, uh, this is a shameless plug now. Okay, so uh, forgive me this. Well, let's just talk because, about that for a second. Tamaka sure. is an Indian restaurant. I Ravi, what's his name? A couple of guys in the chef have a Ra- few restaurants. Ra- Rani and Chintan. Uh, I think right. that in many ways, Chintan is like having his moment uh, in the culinary field of New York that that David Chang had in two thousand four and five. Indian food that uh, has been sort of shoved off into the corner or specific pigeonholes for a long time is bursting out in an interesting way. Uh, he's very so dynamic. Yeah, and, and, and an amazing guy. It's funny. We have a lot of crossover. Like we grew up in the same town. He, he busts my chops and says that uh, I was the rich kid because I lived in South Bombay. But, I, but truthfully, the area he lived in in Bombay, I used to think was a suburb back when I was a kid. Ah, uh, uh, but we, we, both, we both lived in Atlanta and Singapore. Uh, and randomly, he's now moved because he's, he's a young father. To Jersey? He has a young family. He lives in Jersey in the oh, town so I graduated funny. in the town I graduated high school from uh, that is crazy <laughs> so what's the the wine list they paid attention to it well to I paid attention to it and, and, you know honestly it's uh, and I, I want to be clear here it's not going to change your mindset you're not going to see wines on there that are super rare or anything like that it's an honest simple young list and appropriate for the neighborhood and appropriate for the restaurant that, you know, they're going to make money on it, but they're able to price everything quite fairly. But the focus on actually pairing cuisine like that with fine wine is something that I've always wanted to do. And uh, with Daniel and the team, we were able to do, I think, in a really cool way uh, with insight also from my, my own experience, because the sad truth is there is no culture for Indian food and wine. No, it doesn't exist. No. And the reason for that no. is, is just people don't drink and eat at the same time in India. You go to a cocktail party, you, you no. booze for like three hours while eating fried snacks. Then you sit down to dinner and you drink water. That's the culture. Ah. That's the truth. And, and so to be able to see the alternate side of that and, and combine my love for wine and, and experience of European culture, uh, with the cuisine of India is very cool. And also simply, it's the, one of the most delicious restaurants I've ever eaten in, in my life. I love those guys. I love their food. So so those, all of those ending with the maca are great recos. We got to move to our next question because we're running out of time. And this is another good comparison question. I asked you your favorite all-time wine, and I'm not sure if then I said to you, Initially, when I framed the question, it was like, Raj, what's the most rare, expensive wine you ever drank? I, I said 45 Romani Conti. I remember now. <laughs> you do? So then the, the question has morphed to, 
Raj, what's the wine that is significant to you, important, maybe changed the way you were thinking, maybe was a gateway wine, mm-hmm. you know, and that plays away from, you know, rare and cost, you know, necessarily, you know, when you now look at what you've been doing all these years, is there a wine or two that just had an influence on you? Yeah, well, I, if I can, I'll take it all the way back to the beginning and uh, talk about the the one that made the light go off, you know. Uh, That's it. Early in my career, uh, working at a restaurant called the Ryland Inn, still exists, different ownership, different situation. Still a good I, place, I, though. I, I hear, I haven't been in years, but it was a very different place at the time, very ambitious, Relay and Chateau, crazy great wine cellar, my first wine job. I was tasked with pairing wines with the tasting menu, but also tasked with not buying anything because they had a bunch of inventory. I found 20-odd or 30-odd bottles of uh, a 1971 three-star Auslese Riesling from uh, uh, Christoffel. Uh, And I I was like, I don't know. These are going to be any good dark glass. I couldn't tell if it was dark glass or dark wine. It was dark glass. It was green glass, obviously. Uh, But I didn't know that much about wine at the time so i didn't know any right. better uh i pulled the foil off and it's completely covered the cork is completely covered in mold and it stinks to high hell and i'm like oh this is oh, gross wiping it off uh cleaning it up getting the cork out in crumbles you know tiny pieces everywhere uh, cork into the wine uh, i'm like oh this is gonna be a disaster but gotta try it see if it's gonna work poured it in a glass and it was the most brilliant color of gold i'd ever seen I put it into my nose and was transported to an entirely different place. And just the notion that this this creature, at the time it was probably, uh, well, it was certainly the early 2000s, so it was about 30 years old. Um, the concept that a white wine could last that long, could smell yeah. this compelling and still have so much fruit, yeah. to completely take me to a different place. I'd never been to the Mosul. Uh, years later when I first visited, uh, this, it smelled the same, and, and it was – stamped in my mind's eye and and my uh my nose so clearly and it still is i'm smelling it right now and in, in, uh in do my you memory. know do you know looking back was 71 any kind of decent year it was like the best years in the 70s yeah oh it was okay so that it, 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 it translated yeah All I mean, right. people say 76 so that, but i like 71 better personally. no 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 but and it then was on a the strong palate, it just blew my mind because it was so it wasn't it had a sweetness to it but its length and its salinity and its minerality and it, how much it spoke of the place where it came from was mind-blowing. In retrospect, I shouldn't have paired it with foie gras. That's what I did because I was stupid and they said sweet wine with foie gras and I, I took that out of a book and followed along. But I, today I would pair that with either uh, you know something like pheasant or, or a very, very delicate uh, fish. But nonetheless, right. that, that wine taught me that wine is more than alcoholic beverage in bottle. It is places, a, people, that, and time. That's a good one. All right, last question. And Raj, I got to remind you, we're running out of time. Sorry. <laughs> you should be, nothing to do with you. You should be able to answer this. I asked my guests, best wine recommend around 15, 20, 22 bucks Give me a red, give me a white. It could be a region, you know, like Muscadet. I always say my kids are in their 20s. They can't afford, you know, to give crappy wine, but they also can't afford 45 bucks, you know. So give me a couple of wines. Okay. Um, and that price I'll give you, retail. I'll give you two relatively precise wines just because they come to mind and they fit the category. Uh, 
one I've spoken about in uh, sort of categorically, which is uh, cabinet Riesling. Uh, but rather than the cabinet Riesling, I think if we look for uh, a, a very simple uh, regional Riesling from Germany, that's almost always the best bang for your buck. And so I would go with uh, the limestone Riesling, and he makes this in both a dry and uh, off-dry cabinet format uh, by Klaus-Peter Keller from the Rheinhessen. Uh, right. Just purely, purely delicious and uh in that price almost range? like rainwater yeah absolutely to, limestone okay. limestone shouldn't hit the shelves more than 22 25 and okay. uh you know his fund fells for example is the more expensive one now but this is a slightly more uh, uh basic level of his quality level offerings and a red i would drink hmm, probably something from spain something from uh, Catalonia. There's a, a, a producer named Pardas, I think makes really fantastic wines. And, Spell. And P-A-R, P like Peter, A-R like right. Robert, D like David, A-S like Sally. Seller Pardas, uh, you should totally check those out. None of their wines are very expensive, but especially the sort of light fruity reds that they make. Um, absolutely delicious, pair really well with food chill them a bit and they're they're drinkers all right so those are good ones and like i said earlier i'm gonna post all your answers and i'm also gonna look back at your other ones and see <laughs> how raj you've grown as a wine person all right so <clears throat> we end the show every uh, week with a segment called the weekly wine sip each wine each week we taste a different wine on air um, this week, Raj was nice enough to send over a champagne, the Georges Laval Cumier Premier Cru Brut Nature Non-Vintage uh, Champagne. Raji, I got it in front of me. Tell me a little about this, you know, producer and the champagne. Vincent Laval uh, is one of my absolute favorite people in the world and, and certainly amongst the best winemakers, I think, uh, that's out there driven completely from the farming uh he's also somewhat lucky in that uh his father never used chemicals in the vineyards uh ah. so they've been organic and certified organic uh for for more than 40 50 years um just making s some single vineyard wines this is a blend uh, of a few of the vineyards but all within Cumier. he only makes two and a half hectares so it's a tiny production um and i think he makes wines with a tremendous intensity for sure but uh because of the farming being so so excellent uh there's a real clarity and precision to the wines not only because but certainly partially because he's also able to to make them in a, a undosed style so there's no dosage it's a uh explain what that is dosage. there's no sugar added uh at the brut nature uh, means no sugar right no, no dosage specifically okay. for the sugar yeah and he certainly okay. doesn't use any capitalization i.e pre-fermentation for sugar to boost the alcohol content because that's right. not necessary anymore and he hasn't had to do that anyway because of his farming being so uh excellent but and because the kumir vineyards face south so they've all, they, they gain ripeness pretty well but um also he doesn't like to have sugar kind of distracting from the wine uh and that's something that came about in the 90s uh he discovered that he he liked to present his wines this way frankly because most of the time, his customers would taste the wine at his cellar before he sold them uh, prior to disgorgement. So he would disgorge them uh, a la minute, uh, serve them, taste them collectively, and then sell them a wine later that was that had some dosage. So effectively, right. it, it was almost Different. like a bait and switch. So uh, yeah. he, he went back to the model of everything being uh, brut nature. Um, 
Meunier, a little bit of Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, uh, very What's salty. The percentages? Uh, it depends. Is on the it more Meunier? I mean, I know it varies. That, that's this a, bottle uh, is in a, this bottle in 2018. The answer is uh, not only do I not know, but I don't care. Uh, okay. <laughs> he, has, he is about the. But he does use yeah, he, he uses Meunier. Yeah. He uses Meunier, oh. which is typical in that part of the region. But you know that, right. that's not the important question because it's really it, it, these wines transcend uh, the variety, especially with a blend having all three. And it's really about the place. It really like explains Cumier, which is a south-facing area really closer to uh, Montagne de Rennes or, or like the hills uh, south of Epernay uh, than the proper Valley de la Marne, even though it's technically on the Marne in the Valley de la Marne. Um, so I, I have it in front of me. It's got a beautiful, you know, golden color. Um, not light, not super deep, but really a nice golden. Yeah. I've tasted it a bunch of times. Um, I, I get white fruits. I get the fruits coming out, the mouthfeel is, I would use the word luxurious, but not pointing towards unctuous. It just, you know, feels good in the mouth. Yeah, it's got some richness to it. I mean, it's 2018. Yeah, I mean, not, that's the word, not fat, right. but, you know, right. rich. It's rich for I'm sure, getting. because it is 2018, which is a warm vintage uh, everywhere in France, certainly. In, and that'll in, give in you Germany. that richness, yeah. the warm vintage. Exactly. Right? This this uh, plays the role of his, you know, entry level, but it's not really a non-vintage. He doesn't re- use much of any reserve wine. Right. Uh, so you'll see on the back, it says lot zero uh, eighteen or, or 0018, and that, that refers to the vintage of the harvest. Uh, and it was warm, and therefore it does have a richness. But again, that richness is not coming from sugar. It's coming from uh, from ripeness, from from the fruit. And at the same time, you know, I, I don't like talking about this fruit or that because I, I find that everyone's experience with wines and fruits is frankly different. It always annoys me when my friends say things like, you know, curry leaf or gooseberry. It's like, who the hell knows what that stuff tastes like? I know what a curry leaf I tastes like. I have trouble like with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Unless you grew up in New Jersey, uh, in America, it's hard to come by the curry leaf thing. But That's right. What what I like really? to focus on is really just that saltiness that's so pervasive. And, and there is a salinity to it. You're right. And it really makes the wine's length apparent to me. Like when you taste that what wine. What pairs well with this? Finish what you were saying and then well, tell me about pairing. Simply to say that it contributes to the length. And for me, that's the right. quality measure. It's like when I've tasted a wine, how, the, how long the experience of it. And it doesn't always have to be the exact flavors, but the experience of that wine stays with my psyche, with my mind, with my body. That's a sign of quality. I would pair, well, uh, again, you know, champagne agenda means that champagne pairs well with everything, but also if- But this is a richer, you know, warm weather champagne. I mean, get specific here. Yeah, I think that uh, you move away from, you know, the the sort of notion of raw fish, caviar, things like that. Certainly something salty is appropriate, but I almost think you can go with like a, a Spanish ham. Uh, ah, or, that'd be cool. You know, I had this amazing ham at my friend Andre Mack's place, uh, a great place to drink, by the way. And it's a ham bar. A ham bar. Uh, he turned me onto this ham called Lady Edison. I had never heard about it, but apparently it's quite famous. American? It's, it, or? It's, it's American. Everything he serves is American. Okay. And, right. and that with some Laval, I think, would make a proper Okay. Someday. So Lady Edison and Laval, that's your <laughs> other wine and food pairing. All right. So this is the Georges Laval Cumier Premier Cru Brute Nature non-vintage champagne raj thank you for that it was a treat we have to wrap up if you have a question suggestion wine happening or event hit me up at sam at the grape nation.com that's sam at the grape nation.com subscribe to the grape nation podcast on itunes stitcher spotify or wherever you get your pods take a second or two to hit the subscribe button this way without 
Potchgring around, you'll get Raj's interview sent to you when you're ready to go. Follow us on Instagram at SBenRuby. In the same vein, hit your notifications. This way you'll know when the new shows come around and who the guests are. On Twitter, we're at BenRuby. On Instagram, we're at SBenRuby. But you can always use the hashtag TheGrapeNation. Um, as I mentioned, we will post Raj's wine list and the weekly wine sip we just tasted on our social media sites. Um, Raj... We've talked about a lot of different things, which I think will pique a lot of people's interests. First of so. all, if we want to find where you, Raj, are on social media, where do we go? So my personal uh, handle is Raj Vine, R-A-J-V-I-N-E. Uh, apologies, okay. in, apologies in advance for that because I'm terrible. Uh, you were I'm a young kid when, you were a young kid when you picked that up. Oh, not for the handle, but for the content. I'm terrible at this stuff. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> but, right. uh, and then, uh, so each of the festivals uh, and Presswar each have their own handles also. So pre at Presswar.wine. P-R-E-S-S-O-R-I is Presswar. Oh, I are. I'm sorry. I have it in front of me. I'm just mildly not. And, and, and if you just search uh, La Fette, La Palais, and La Table, you'll find us fairly easily. Right. Um, and each one has their own sites and information. And really, right in front of us is La Fête de Champagne, which is coming up in November. So that's the one you want to start with and get all the information. Um, Raj, I want to thank you for coming back on. We had a lot to talk about. Thanks for your perspectives on um, what's going on in the business, talking about some wines, answering all our stuff, sending in the champagne. Thank you for that. Thank you to our engineer, Armin, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. Thanks, Sam. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening. <laughs>